Hello, friends. We're back. Hit Factory here. I'm Aaron. Hey, I'm Carly. Hey, Carly. Good to have you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Always a pleasure. (laughs) Sounds very convincing. (laughs) To be here. (laughs) Yes. Uh, If you can't tell, folks, we're a little bit tired. We're recording this one just a tad late. So if this is on the free feed sometime Friday afternoon, uh, you'll know it's because it's like 1 a.m. already. And uh, it's been a long ass week. And here we are back at it, ready to talk about a fantastic film of the 1990s for you all, Hit Factory Nation. Bringing you content. Content you love, content you crave, giving you that fix, that sweet, sweet podcast audio (laughs) once more. Yeah. Today, we've got a good one for you. We're just going to get right into it. We're going to try to make this one brief. We have a general rule on the podcast that we do not record an episode that is longer than the runtime of the film, and it is a pretty short movie. 82 minutes or so. It is shorter than Phone Booth. <laughs> it is shorter than Phone Booth. OG listeners of the pod will understand that reference. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a dumb thing to say. It's, no, it's not. It's evidentiary. <laughs> the film is shorter than Phone Booth. Well, yes. You don't need to get the reference. No, it just but, is shorter than Phone Booth. But you'll understand why that's meaningful yeah. to you if you are a... Uh, long-time listener of the show. You will. Uh, by any means, it's, it's a movie. It's my lore. That's right. It is part of the Carly lore. <laughs> uh, we are today talking about a movie not terribly unlike Phone Booth in theme and style. It's so the same. It's basically the same movie. <laughs> uh, we're talking about the 1991 Todd Haynes film, Poison, or Poisson, if you were going to follow in the lineage of uh, Jean Genet. But see, no, because... Poisson is what the mad chef sings in The Little Mermaid. Les poissons, les poissons. (laughs) How I love les poissons. It means like shellfish, I think. Well, or like crab or. In many ways, I feel like that is (laughs) a thematically viable title for this movie. Yeah. (laughs) If you think about the sort of cloistering effect of society. As the, the shell. The shell. Yeah. And all of these. <laughs> the encasement. Right. These characters are the the mollusk. Nay, maybe even the pearl mm. inside the mollusk. Yes. You know? It's good. Yeah. Some level setting here. Some foundational work to introduce the movie. Todd Haynes, writer-director, 1991. This is his debut feature film coming off a, a, on the heels of... The late 1980s release, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, a fantastic short film. A uh, fucking masterpiece. A masterpiece. Todd Haynes telling the story of uh, the titular Karen Carpenter and her struggles with anorexia, just her struggles with fame in general, the pressures of uh, her career path of society, of her uh, childhood, and and not even really like her her kind of like early brushes with fame as she sort of enters her career, I guess. By any means, it's all done with Barbie dolls. It's really the only Barbie doll movie you need. hundred percent. Sorry, Greta. Sorry. Like, it is a feminist text. Full stop. Yeah. If you want to get, like get real, real feminism, into the weeds. Real Capital F feminism. Yes. None of this like third wave, fourth wave fucking neolib bullshit. Right. It is 
it's like ninth wave. <laughs> it's so far beyond. No, it third. is. It's like third cubed. No. Oh, God. Yeah. Exponents. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Which would be what? The 27th wave? I don't remember. Because three squared would be nine I, times another three. I like, used to be so good at math. I was never very good at math. But I was. But exponents, I remember. Please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. That's what I remember about. Wait, what? Remind me what that? That's the order of operations when you're solving equations. It's parentheses, exponents, multiplication, division, (sighs) addition, subtraction. PEMDAS. Please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. Wow. Yeah. Yes. And that's all I remember. Can I still solve complex equations? I doubt it. But at least I remember what order you're supposed to. Mm. Uh, It would be cool if like I still did those. Yeah, Sometimes. every so often I think about that and then like I look at like I'm I'm reading a great science fiction book right now that's dealing with a lot of like uh physics and just sort of like theoretical ideas about the universe and so it's got me like watching YouTube videos on and like TED Talk animations of these complex theories of the universe and you see some of like the equations that they use to notate things and it's like I don't those are just numbers and lines like that's how does that how, how does that that's nerd shit right that to me does not a universe make but it is the ways we come to understand it anyway we're going for a short episode here no more <laughs> digressions what happens is when i'm tired i can't just focus. go everywhere it's all right <laughs> i will keep i will keep us squarely on the bullseye you, and i will help yeah. us take it home you know i'm good at that i'll you, edit in real time here mm-hmm. and we will get this thing on the road. You are very good at taking it home. Thank you very much for that. So Todd Haynes, writer-director of Poison, 1991 release. Uh, very timely, in fact, as uh, the festivities surrounding the annual Sundance Film Festival are starting to kick up. They're, they're underway as we speak, as this episode is coming to you. This film wins Best Feature at the 1991 Sundance Awards. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another quick digression. There was a list that came out from Sundance of uh, a voting body put together like the top 10 all time features to come out of Sundance. It's a pretty boring list for all the movies that. Give me like been. two. I mean, two of them are Linklater films, but they're not like Slacker or anything like like they're, I think, like Before Sunrise and, and, and Boyhood. Uh, mm. uh, and then Little Miss Sunshine and like Reservoir Dogs is on there. Um, it's, I mean, it's it like, it's stuff that like, you know, maybe in terms of like impact like or cultural like cultural impact, right. Yeah. Which is a, a bullshit, like nebulous term, but like in terms of, you know, quote unquote cultural impact or, or, uh, you know, recognition outside of the festival, maybe those are the big winners, but this uh. is a, this is a group that was asked and tasked with voting, uh, simply on the basis of like, what were the most meaningful films to come out of Sundance? And there's only one female filmmaker on the list uh, who is part of the directing duo that made Little Miss Sunshine. And if I remember correctly, there are uh, almost no or or flat out zero uh, directors of color uh, or queer directors in the entire list. So kind of embarrassing. Embarrassing, but germane to our conversation today. Absolutely. Because we are talking about the confines within which we find ourselves understanding what meaningful air quotes what good art air quotes (laughs) is air quotes and who decides that yeah 
No, you're 100% correct. I mean, look at my film culture, dog. Look at the look at the degradation. Haynes has been very explicit in interviews uh, since this movie came out now, what, 33 years ago, uh, that he does not believe that even as far back as like 2011, when this film was receiving like a 20th anniversary DVD release, was in interviews saying, there is absolutely no way I could make poison in today's film culture. Um, and that was already almost like 15 years ago from now Stop so doing the thing where you say how many years ago a year was <laughs> <laughs> i hate it i'm sorry uh we we have to reckon with that on the show look it's 2024 right now mm-hmm. uh all of the movies of uh 1999 the big movie year that everyone always talks about as one of the very best uh are celebrating the 25th anniversary this year and you will probably be seeing a lot of coverage in other publications and on other podcasts about it, maybe not so much from us. I thought it would be kind of fun just to avoid it altogether. Um, I can't make any promises. We're at the whim of some of our guests and what they would like to talk about. Anyway, getting into Poison quickly. And uh, like I said, I on the prize here. <laughs> You're doing... Look, how do you keep a wave upon the sand? That's <laughs> <laughs> what I always come you, back to. You're absolutely correct, Carly. <laughs> Uh, so Poison is a sort of triptych of stories that are all interwoven. It's literally, a, it's it not is, sort of, it it's, is it's literally a triptych. Literally a triptych. It is three stories interwoven in very fascinating ways, in ways where uh, they mix imagery and dialogue and, and sort of sound cues and things like that. Um, I was often kind of shocked at just how abrupt and how short some of the the segments were. Like I was expecting them to be a little bit more prolonged and happen for a little bit longer. But sometimes really it's like 30 to 90 seconds and then bam, we're into the next story again. And they all have uh, different titles, which they are not given in any sort of like intertitle or text during the film. But we see them uh, notated as such in the credits. There is Hero, which plays out sort of as like a collaged, uh, like true crime documentary with a lot of talking head interviews uh, about a, a young boy who murdered his father to protect his mother from being abused uh, and then flew away out the window and has not returned home since there is horror which is a sort of genre pastiche of a very specific kind of like mid-century cold war era science fiction thriller uh, and then there's another one called Homo, which is germane to uh, a portion of the story that kind of plays out as a a, a pretty funny punchline, which is uh, a prison story. And it's very beautifully rendered. You've got these like deep, dark, slaty grays and what is one of the strangest looking prisons I've ever seen. Like it, it just feels like a labyrinth in many parts. Um, and it's intercut with these gorgeous like pastoral fantasies where we're out in green fields with flowers and these just like uh, impossibly blue skies and, and and like ruins like architectural ruins yes in architectural Stones ruins and- it, it feels very um i don't know it just feels very fantastical it's very beautiful very lyrical and that segment of the film in particular is largely derived from and inspired by the works of a queer French author named Jean Genet, specifically 
three of his novels, Our Lady of the Flowers, Miracle the Rose, and The Thief's Journal. Uh, it's also in part sort of based uh, pretty heavily on his only film, uh, which was called Un Chant d'Amour, a.k.a. A Song of Love. Uh, and it, too, is a film about prisoners uh, who are in his film in solitary confinement and intercut with these sort of more beautiful literary pastoral fantasies. Um, I got so much pleasure out of just the constant shifting in styles that we were getting. Like I could not really get a solid foundation and footing in any one of them before we were off to the races in the next one. And I felt that that just really carried me through the film. Like it was over before I even really expected it to be because of just how quickly paced it is. Like I said, how sort of like fast it, it intercuts each of the segments with other portions of stories. And uh, every time, you know, you think you kind of lock into some of those like documentary footage styles, all of a sudden you're getting blasted with this like very orchestral, like very dramatic score and beautiful, like black and white imagery with stark shadows and close-ups. Um, I, I thought it was visually and stylistically just incredibly daring. Yeah, two things that I think are important about the like formal collaging that he's doing. One is that you mentioned that there are sort of these like short segments that last you know, but 30 to 60 seconds and then you're on to the next one and we're, we're in a different part of the triptych. And that had the effect for me, and I think this is Todd Haynes' intent, but artist intent is a, you know, a big lofty question that we don't need to get into. And it's a big thorny thing. And many works transcend artist intent. Looking at you, Master Clint Eastwood. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's one. Yep. Um... De Palma will come later when we're talking about uh, about the Brechtian qualities of this. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> fuck. Um, no, so I lost my thought. Sorry, what, what you was were, I saying? You were saying that uh, you believe Todd Haynes's intent with the quick succession of oh, images and styles. Yes, is that he is doing what many a talented Renaissance artist that perfected the triptych uh, format did, which is weave the stories together mm-hmm. to sort of like comment on each other and give additional context to the other panel, the other part of the triptych. Yep. Um, so I often found myself like taking a feeling or a sentiment or an idea that was engendered in one of those short moments and carrying it into the next sequence and it had this beautiful like quilting effect of like taking these three very distinct stories and kind of like emotionally and like psychologically forcing me to connect them and like read them as related texts even if like they aren't necessarily like on paper, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it made each of the stories, the distinct stories, richer for me. And then the other thing that I think this kind of formal collaging, this 
formal quilting that he's doing with this triptych of, of stories. You know, we start the film in the middle of an event. Mm-hmm. We don't know what the event is, but we know that it is uh, one of heightened anxiety. There's like police officers. There are screams. There are, um, you know, hurried conversations, what have you. We start in the middle of a situation and the entire film, you're sort of like catching up and piecing together what each of these stories is about and what images that he shows us really early on mean Mm -hmm. later. Right. And what I like about that is that it forces me to do something that I am not good at naturally, which is just like go along for the ride. Right, just abandon yourself <laughs> to the story. You uh, are notorious for hating that kind of thing in certain films. It's not that I hate it. I just have questions. Right. And and you know my response to those questions is... We'll find out together. We'll Let's find, find out, out together. together. Yep. Todd Haynes is such a compelling filmmaker and he is so good at his manipulation of the medium and of form, cinematic form and narrative storytelling and his sort of like inversion of like linear storytelling and, you know, what counts as narrative and what doesn't. He's so good at all that shit that like I didn't care that I didn't understand what was going on. I was just like, okay, like. I'll figure this out, I guess, or I won't. And being okay with that, like trusting the director enough to be okay not knowing and to also not know if I will ever know is like a big fucking deal for me. That is a huge deal for you. And I think one shows Haynes' mastery, uh, even very early on here, like we mentioned, this is a, a debut feature. Uh but also I think you're just you're you're earned trust in him as a creator because of the, all the other films of his that we've seen and just knowing that he's someone with a lot of complex ideas on his mind that he will carry us to an end point and leave us to piece together meaning in many ways. I like that the film did not make sense completely to me until the credits rolled. Sure. And for me, like literally the naming of the thing, like actually concretizes your understanding. I I would even say like even at that point, it doesn't necessarily concretize into definitive statements on anything. It is uh, it's a film very much that uh, about its loose ends and about kind of like the curvatures and complexities of its storytelling. Uh, If we just dig into each one of these a little bit, I'll, I'll say I think the one for me that I was most transfixed by over the entirety of the film is also the one that is given probably the least time to breathe, which is uh, Hero, the one about the boy who uh, kills his father and then flees into the heavens. And it's this sort of collage documentary style uh, retelling and, and recounting of the story as if it's some sort of like complex mystery, right? There's this sort of like undercurrent of the the community and the neighborhood all sensing like there was always something a little off about 
this this boy you know like we we could never get a read on him he, he never really made much sense to us but we always assumed like something was going to happen right i mentioned off mic to you that this uh portion of the film sort of to me recalled uh only because I'd, I'd seen it very recently elements of the peter greenaway film the falls which is told in a very similar kind of like collage structuralist kind of documentary style that one's more of a lark like it's it's meant to be a very elaborate and elongated punchline about like the futility of order and and meaning and you know academic pursuits in the wake of senselessness uh, but also it's a film that is obsessed with the idea of human beings in flight which i found to be an interesting parallel with the young boy like lifting off into the heavens um i can't help but wonder if maybe that movie semi-influenced this particular section of the film you know it it plays out as if it's this kind of like grand mystery with some sort of like pregnant sense of foreboding and really at the end of it like as more information is revealed and as more people speak up and and we get these interviews with members of the community or teachers or classmates with the mother herself eventually like it's such an obvious picture of what happened, which is a young queer boy growing up in a very conservative suburban community who is curious about his sexuality, curious about intimacy, like exploring with other classmates who also don't necessarily kind of understand what's happening. Uh, he's sexually abused by his father who also uh, physically abuses his mother as well. And he's witness to this in the home all the time. Uh, eventually one day he intervenes in his mother's abuse and finds his father's gun in a drawer and kills his dad. And it's so like simplistic. It's, it's so like, uh, uh, immediate a story that is kind of obfuscated and, and left vague to us by its formal presentation. And I thought that that was a really interesting and compelling way to sort of talk about the ways in which society at large and like conservative communities don't talk about homosexuality and understand queerness. Um, I just thought it was I thought it was really fascinating. And I, I think it's very important and potent too that spoiler the film ends with a, a first person shot of him you know, taking the gun out of the out of the dresser and killing his dad and then flying out the window. And we see these last final moments of his sort of like levitation and ascendancy out the window. And then he looks up to the heavens. I really liked this story a lot. Um, and the thing that I found myself thinking about, uh, which will be no surprise to D-Dog, friend of the show. <laughs> Shout out D-Dog. Is... <laughs> Caravaggio of course um there is this way that the the boy in this particular story is talked about that is you know on the one hand from a, a certain group of people it's clear they saw him as very special um and having kind of like a magical quality even right. without the fact that like he flies out of a fucking window <laughs> um and then there are people that share accounts of him where it's clear that like they had a very antagonistic relationship with him and he them. Um, and they're kind of like, oh, like 
he fucking sucked and like he was always on my nerves and like yep. he, there was something about him i wanted to fucking punch him in the face like <laughs> you know right there are these mixed mixed messages about who this child is but taken together we understand this child to be one who is troubled yes but also just like mischievous and like figuring things out and indeed special and when the mom says first says at the very beginning of this story that her son flew out the window the first image that came to my mind was that of hermes mm. of cupid yeah and caravaggio famously has uh, a painting called amor vincit omnia um, or love triumphant or victorious love victorious amour whatever has a bunch of different names um it uh in no uncertain terms shows cupid fingering himself in the ass <laughs> and caravaggio did this with a lot of his paintings he has a very famous painting called sick bacchus bacchus is of course the god of revelry and revelry and wine and, wine and all, those and things. all yeah. that shit um and this image of bacchus is like he's jaundiced um it's so good and so caravaggio has this this um project in his a lot of his paintings of taking these very storied figures and stories of greek mythology that were pedestaled in the renaissance and brought back to life because they were thought to be this sort of like map to how to live um an inspired and like enlightened life he in a lot of his paintings he takes these stories and he takes these figures and he illuminates explicit things about them that are apparent in a lot of the original mythology and so like that Cupid in Caravaggio's painting is like a little boy that's like pleasuring himself in the ass and like, you know, having a blast, <laughs> like is is evocative of the essence of Hermes. Hermes is a very playful, mischievous, kind of deviant character but one who was very committed to the pleasures of the body. And I like that even if Haynes is not explicitly referencing this figure or even Caravaggio's rendering of this figure, that I was able to make that connection in the sort of mythologizing of this boy that he does. And I think in this mythologizing, he is allowing room for us to ponder the specialness and like the importance of this queer child and of queerness writ large. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Only you could make that connection on the show. I would have never gotten that, but I love I that. Know. I think I, that that's brilliant. I think it was our uh, bottle rocket episode where I went long on young boy statues called Koroi. <laughs> <laughs> It made sense at the time. It it did, and it always does. Is the thing is it uh, it enhances my understanding, and I think that you are probably a thousand percent correct that this is uh, something that Haynes is 
drawing from however explicitly or intentionally you know whether it's incidental or not that this uh, Caravaggio painting probably has some uh, level of meaning within the context of the hero story. The quiet residential community of Glenville was stunned to learn of the strange death of Fred Beacon. It gave everybody the creeps. All the neighbors were afraid to come out their door. It was absolutely the most dreadful thing I have experienced in my entire lifetime. Oh, it was terrible. You know, I heard every shot. You never know. I heard every single shot. You think you know people, but you really don't know them, and you live next door to them. You don't, if something like this happens. Richie Beacon's disappearance provoked one of the toughest missing person investigations in Long Island history. The whole thing lasted at least a year. And his face is still on milk cartons. What was found? Nothing. Felicia Beacon became the center of Glenville controversy following her extraordinary account of her son's disappearance. I guess I... I just didn't... I definitely didn't know what he was. I mean... I punished him. His father hit him just like any kid. But I definitely didn't realize. Realize what? that he was a gift from God. Moving on to the horror story. Uh, This is the one we already mentioned as the sort of 50s sci-fi pastiche. It's done in beautiful black and white. It's done with very stark kind of shadows and imagery and uh, really details the story of one character, Dr. Graves, played by Larry Maxwell, uh, who is trying to unpack the whole sort of like human sexual appetite. So he has kind of refined his experiments and created this serum that ultimately like is that thing, is like sort of the uh, refined human sexual appetite. He meets uh, a, a new doctor, a new scientist, researcher who's come to work with him named Nancy Olson. He seems very confused that a... Nancy Olson would be a woman um, and, you know, very much in the spirit, I guess, of of that era of filmmaking um, and of the era that it's portraying. But he gets distracted by how hot she is and thinks he's sipping his coffee and ends up inadvertently sipping on some uh, black tar, just like straight up human sexual appetite. And uh, from there on out, he begins to like form like lesions all over his body. Uh, it, it takes on like a, a body horror kind of quality to it. He becomes a pariah. Um, he, he starts isolating. And through it all, Nancy sticks by him and chooses to love him and tries to get him to come outside and remain a part of society. Uh, and it ultimately ends in tragedy when she succumbs to the disease, to the virus, to the the lesions herself. Everyone else in the community and the town begins to also uh, become infected um, and, and are all equally susceptible to this thing. And it ends with that scene from the very beginning of the film where she's she's died. The cops are trying to arrest Dr. Graves because he is wanted for murdering uh, a, a person 
and he ultimately chooses to jump to his death rather than face the carceral system, the penal system that awaits him, I suppose. Uh, so it plays out a lot like a traditional kind of like, I don't know, like a, like a sci-fi horror monster kind of story. Uh, but obviously the, the parallels between it and the experience of the AIDS crisis in the 80s uh, is is right there very much kind of like blatant and, and in your face in this particular story this was my favorite panel in the triptych okay which is nuts because i can't do body horror stuff yeah like, at all i am incredibly squeamish well i mean we haven't talked about it quite yet because we haven't gotten to the uh the homo uh part of the triptych yet but like much of this film is incredibly antagonistic to an audience and horror especially has like I, this is not just you know like a, a boss baby situation with me like parts of it actually do play out kind of like Cronenbergian body horror like there are things in here and parts where like his like sores and wounds are like pussing and leaking onto that a hot dog onto a fucking hot dog which is disgusting and disturbing terrible uh but plays out not unlike uh the fly you know and and some of the grotesque scenes it doesn't go quite to that extent because it's not i think entirely meant to like totally gross us out and and you know get us to find it repulsive but it is there for sure yeah and yet i found this story to be the one that i was most intoxicated by and drawn into um and i think it's because it's the one for me that was the most sort of like formally compelling. I really loved the genre pastiche that he was doing with mm -hmm. these like Cold War era, like sci-fi, like heightened anxiety, you know, aliens are going to get us type shit. <laughs> um, and what I love about the mimicry of this genre, um, and he does so beautifully, by the way, I mean, the details that he is, outlining that fully immerse you in what very much feels like one of these films yeah. it does not feel like a pantomime totally i was gonna say like you know when we say pastiche like that's not meant at all to be pejorative like it it really does feel part and parcel with those kinds of films like it does such a, a powerful and and brilliant job of evoking the sensation of watching one of those movies all the way down to the performers in it being quite wooden and whether or not it's yes. intentional or not, like it could very much be like a thing that's just like a matter of, you know, finding uh, inexperienced actors on a very tight budget. But like it it works for the sake of the film. No, it totally works. He paces their dialogue quite intentionally, too. He leaves these sort of like stilted spaces in between their conversations that feel kind of like these older films. But my point is that in referencing these Cold War era films um, that are very much tied up in the American project of nuclear proliferation, he is also connecting the strictures of heteronormative society um, then and now and particularly in the 90s around AIDS, um, he is 
connecting those things. And he is saying these are all part of the same project. Um, and this violence of, you know, mid-century America, this like fear-mongering McCarthyism, what have you, all of these things are also connected to the experience of queer and oppressed people in 1991 and uh, throughout history of this country. And I really love that he doesn't like tell you that. You just get it from watching and you you infer that. The other thing that's beautiful about this particular story is that the main character, Dr. Graves, is a blonde, blue-haired, white, heterosexual man of science. Yep. And he is infected with a virus that gives him rampant sexual drive and lesions on his body. Mm-hmm. And he is talked about with the same verbatim, the same verbiage that queer men were discussed broadly by media, by our go- by our government, when we did talk about them. He is discussed in the exact same way. He is talked about, his disease is talked about in the exact same way. And I think that it is meant to be overt for a reason like he's using a blunt object here very for much this, so for this story as he would need to for the stylistic kind of uh genre piece that he's evoking completely right like aliens are russian in all those movies <laughs> you know yes um but it also has this like beautiful effect of reminding you of this sounds cloying but whatever Reminding you of the humanity of these people that we are villainizing. Yeah. And also reminding us that, like, there are a couple very explicit lines where the way that they talk about Dr. Graves is, like, he's a murderer and he's, like, someone with, like, an uncontrollable sexual appetite. And those are two labels that queer people with AIDS in the 80s and 90s had lobbed at them all the time yeah he's talked about in the media they call him something like the leper sex killer or so like it's like it's very blunt and it's very like demeaning you know it's 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 an ugly phrase that they're using but you're right it's 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 absolutely meant to and what you're getting at you know like we talked about this off mic when we were discussing the movie before we recorded you know earlier and i i was having a little bit of trouble with you know, the the metaphor, the analogy, rather, I guess, and worried that it was going to feel kind of clumsy because it was a heterosexual man being infected and because of all the things that kind of went along with with that. Um, but you're 100% correct that it actually enhances it. It actually primes it for its reception by a mass audience and also to understand, to like make a very uh, definitive and blunt statement about the treatment of one subset of men within society versus like blonde haired, blue eyed, heterosexual men and how those two things are not so distinct and so far apart when it comes to being infected with the AIDS virus, right? Like obviously like there are heterosexual people who, you know, had HIV and like they also became pariahs. Dr. Grace. Please. Tom, what happened? 
I accidentally ingested. The serum? Yes. Oh, God. All of it? What are you going to do? There's nothing I can do. You know as well as I, the hormonal system is self-perpetuating. The biomagnetic field is irreversible. I'm a monster. No, you're not. Then look at me. Now. I have the greatest respect for you, Doctor. And of all the people this could happen to, why it had to be you, I just don't know. The fact is, it doesn't disgust me in the slightest. We've got Homo next, and this one stars uh, Scott Renderer. This is the prison one, as a character named John Broom, Broomy, I think they call him at one point, and also actor James Lyons is in this one, playing a character named Jack Bolton, who is sort of the object of Broom's uh, affection, nay, almost like fetishization in this his desire and his ire his desire and his ire i like that that's very good um another quick thing uh on james lyons he is also the co-editor of this film along with todd haynes he edited quite a few movies uh most notably sofia coppola's 1999 film the virgin suicides and he himself was somebody who not uh all that long before Poison was released, uh, received an AIDS diagnosis, uh, and he eventually succumbed in like 2007 after about uh, two decades fighting the virus. Um, so he's an important figure in the film itself, um, and I, I think it's very meaningful that he plays the character that he does in this segment as well. Uh, this is the thorniest of the three. And I, I think, you know, obviously not without reason, but it's the one that has, I think, a lot of the complexities. It's the one from which nearly all of the most famous imagery from this movie comes from. It has those uh, very distinct prison scenes, like we mentioned, with kind of like the the very slaty grays and blues. And it's it looks like, you know, these strange, like almost like kind of like obelisk, like labyrinthine environments where it like it doesn't look like a real prison right we so rarely see cells we so rarely see guards we just see like open rooms it's just a, a very strange and interesting and compelling environment visually alongside the flashbacks which are all done in that kind of pastoral quality impossible like technicolor greens and blues and reds and pinks um, and that's all done on a sound stage fittingly like it is very much like a a fantasy created for the sake of the movie. Uh, what did you make of this one, Carly? Like it's it's uh, a tricky one to talk about. Broom is an inmate. Uh, Bolton gets kind of transferred into the prison system. He recognizes him from 
back when when they were sort of in this boys school together um and has fantasized about him ever since uh specifically after witnessing a very kind of like cruel and vicious act of like defilement that bolton uh, experiences on behalf of the other boys and this uh is one of the most famous scenes some of the most famous images in the movie also the most difficult scene in the movie to watch um, as this group of boys, including a very young, uh, semi-uncredited John Leguizamo, uh, force open Bolton's mouth and then stand back and use him as target practice for spitting. They're just hawking loogies at him into his open mouth, and it's uh, it's very hard to watch. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> um, What I love about this story is that it's the one that feels the most antagonistic in like its visual trappings um, and in a lot of the sort of like hard to watch stuff that yeah. you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And yet I think it is a story that like lingers in the most complexity of its queer characters. Absolutely. And of like queerness like broadly speaking um and i think that's masterful i'm gonna try to say this without sounding patronizing i think there is a certain amount of dignity that haynes is allowing for these queer characters in illuminating the curvatures of their good bad ugly beautiful everything in between Mm -hmm. and like allowing us to be immersed in their messiness and like playing with the stereotypes and characterizations that heteronormative patriarchal capitalist society hegemonically portrays these people as right he's playing with those stereotypes and he's also saying like okay like let's go there this thing that you think i am a rapist a murderer a deviant of some sort like let's go there but then let's also like show these really tender moments and like have there be like conversations where you can tell the characters are reckoning with like certain elements of who they are as a person and finding themselves in other people like there are all these like really beautiful human things that are also messy and that's like what humans are and I think that he is you know insisting upon the like realness and the it's too easy to say insisting upon the humanity of queer people. So I will instead say he is insisting upon the honor of being a human that every person has. For sure. Regardless of like their sexual orientation, their gender identity, whatever it may be. Because like being human is a complicated disaster and it's also beautiful and ecstatic and wonderful and like that's not relegated to straight white men right yeah no i completely agree and like 
you know, if anything, he's sort of kind of thumbing his nose, Haynes's, at this idea of like the perfect victim, right? That like so many gay men in media representation had to be sort of like bastions of civility and properness and a sort of like heteronormative sense of like propriety and all these kinds of things in order for it it to seem like broadly like that they could garner sympathy or that they could be seen as even human beings worthy of respect worthy of dignity worthy of support and and embrace you know all of that coming uh, during the AIDS crisis and the the horrible mismanagement of that by the Reagan administration and just like the the general sort of like reactionary uh, just like viciousness and, and venom towards the gay community at large. And I already kind of mentioned, you know, that this particular section is the one that's very much inspired by the work of Genet, um, specifically in a work like The Thief's Journal. Uh, as I was reading, I have not read these books um, because I am technically illiterate. And uh, <laughs> uh, no, I read sometimes. The jig is up. I promise. Uh, but I uh, I often uh, am antagonistic towards books on this program and, and to some friends, just as kind of a bit. But in these stories, Genet, in, in the Thieves' Journal specifically, is often kind of regarding the idea of homosexuality and his own queerness autobiographically as being both about a certain sense of victimhood and criminality uh, because of the era that these were written in and because of like societal and and legal sort of attitudes towards homosexuality and and you know gay sex acts this segment is in that sandbox that this segment like plays with that idea and that notion and gives us very complex very textured very nuanced and sometimes like occasionally ugly like renditions of queer men's experience queer men's lives like it, it is not a happy story by any means it ends with broom uh raping bolton in the prison and basically telling him like i more or less like i own you like i i am going to do this whenever i want to uh and then like th- that segment really ends with him recalling the memory of this scene of the boys spitting into his open mouth uh at the same time that the voiceover then tells us that Bolton and another inmate try to escape the prison and he's shot dead trying to flee. You know, it's it's very much implied that like his need and his pursuit of liberation from the prison is not simply to like be free of its walls and its bars, but like to escape this character who is effectively our protagonist of this segment of the movie. It is angry uh, it's also defiant and it is like so much of Todd Haynes's work, like definitively radical in its portrayal of queerness, especially at a period in time when it was culturally not received well, not uh, understood in the same way that it is today. And even now, something like this, I would would find any number of people finding problems with it, I imagine, and, and taking offense with it. So... Um, I, I think it's really powerful stuff. Like I said, it's it's one of the ones that's maybe the most difficult to watch in parts and the one that doesn't totally cohere until the very end for me. But I think it's all the more rewarding because of that. By the time I was 16 years old, 
I was notorious as a kid with a terrific knack for theft. Foster homes would no longer take me, and I was sent to the boys' reformatory of Baton. There, in the counterfeit world of men among men, I found my true family. At Baton, I was astounded by the discovery that each male had a male of his own, and that the world of force and manly beauty loved in that way within itself, from link to link. Maximum security prison of Fontenot brought me face to face with my deliverance. Jack Bolton, age 28, 175 pounds, 75 inches, formerly a captive of Baton. I want to talk briefly just about the controversy around the film as well. Um, Haynes is no stranger to controversy. He uh, was met with it from the outset with Superstar because he used unlicensed Carpenter's music. He was sued by Karen Carpenter's estate. He was sued by the estate. He was sued by her brother uh, and, and collaborator. And I have to imagine that the fine folks at Mattel would have probably also uh, gotten extremely litigious with him for use of the Barbie uh imagery it fucking rules yeah it it rocked it's it's just like you know it's deliberately antagonistic uh in all the right ways and in all the cool artistic ways that we hope that someone can and will be uh with their with their creativity and their output but he faces that right away in the late 80s and then coming off that he gets a two hundred fifty thousand dollar grant from the national endowment for the arts so this is federal money from a federal program that he applied for in order to finance poison. Lo and behold, uh, many conservative politicians and other right-wing cultural figures were none too happy to have a a film like this, one that is so uh, distinctly from the queer perspective being made with, uh, with federal cash. So he he gets a lot of it from all over the place. It is Republicans like uh, Jesse Helms, Dick Army, and of course, big boy himself, Newt Gingrich. The gayest man of all of them. Well, yeah. I mean, and his avian wife, Callista, <laughs> literally looks like some sort of egret or something like that. It's it's kind of astounding. Aww. Those Facetune photos she posts of the two of them are, are something to behold. They're great. Uh, by any means... You know, this is this is not a, a new thing in 1991. In fact, throughout the 80s, conservative politicians like Gingrich and Army and Helms 
uh, and the like were all constantly fighting with the NEA over their financing of art, uh, specifically, who would have guessed, art being made by uh, people in minority groups and very much queer artists. Um, one that caused a ton of fervor in the 80s in 1989 was Andre Serrano's Piss Christ, which is just a photo of a crucifix submerged in a jar of his own urine. Rock and roll. I love that. That is fucking cool. Um, you also have stuff in the late 80s, too, with uh, the photographer Robert, Robert Maplethorpe. Um, who was going to get an exhibition at DC's Corcoran Museum of, of Art until uh, they uh, submitted to a pressure campaign from the right-wingers in Congress and culturally uh, who did not want his artwork exhibited there. Um, it eventually found its way over to Cincinnati uh, in Ohio, and, and they did the exhibition there. They won a court case that was about obscenity. whole bunch of bullshit. Uh, Haynes goes through a very similar uh, series of trials. It is all of these guys in Congress, uh, as well as the uh, leader of the far right American Family Association. They always have such like anodyne names like that, don't they? Like focus on the family and shit. Uh, named Donald Wildman? Wildman? I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I'm never going to find out. Anyway pastor uh and a bunch of other guys who just like generally did not appreciate this movie called it pornography accused it of having uh pornographic gay anal sex content in it and the, the very fact that it was entertained by so many media outlets and i read a couple i read like a story from the los angeles times and a few other ones that like took these guys pretty much at their word for their part, the NEA did ultimately like defend the movie. Um, they did unfortunately kind of uh, kowtow a little bit to some of the pressure and required uh, that everyone thereon who applied for federal grant money had to like make a promise in writing that the final product that they would create wouldn't be obscene, which is the the most nebulous term ever i mean it, it's so wishy-washy like uh, obscenity is one of those things that like in legalese is a you know it when you see it kind of thing ultimately just defangs art i will just interject and say que cazzoni the balls on this guy <laughs> like seriously no absolutely he's just out of college when he makes Karen Carpenter superstar. Mm -hmm. Like <laughs> he's he's just so unafraid. Um he's so unafraid and he is so willing to challenge very powerful structures of oppression and like enforcement of status quo. He is so unafraid of challenging those uh, those entities directly, and I admire it. I admire it a great deal. Absolutely. He, I mean, he's a true artist, right? Like, he is allowing the form of his art to follow the function and the, the intent of his art and what he's trying to say, and he's not letting any sort of societal pressures or notions of 
propriety or good taste dictate how he tells his stories. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we we see this even now with something like May, December, mm-hmm. which, man, if you were tired of people talking about it before, you're definitely tired of it now. Still, we're going to try to talk about it a little bit more. We already talked quite a bit about May, December on our 2023 in review episode from earlier in the month and how much we love the movie and all the reasons why we love the movie and why we think it's brilliant. Uh, I stand by all of that. I think it's a fucking awesome movie. One of Todd Haynes' very best. Um, And of course, because it is a Todd Haynes film and complex and nuanced, uh, it has possibly the dumbest possible cultural conversations happening around it at the moment. Every single one of his best movies, which are all of them, does. Yes. (laughs) And so since the last time we talked about it, there have been more developments, which I think are worth talking about just very briefly here. Uh, Vili Folau, who is the husband uh, and also the victim of Mary Kay Letourneau, the woman uh, on whom... Julianne Moore's character in May December is largely based uh, was interviewed. I think it was by Variety, it's Variety or Hollywood Report. I think it was Variety, uh, and he did not have very nice things to say about May December. He said that he was uh, very frustrated by the movie's existence, that he found it to be disrespectful, that he wished that uh, Todd Haynes or anyone involved uh, would have consulted him in some capacity before telling the story and making the film. Uh, and also he, he said something along the lines of if they had reached out to me and, and worked with me on this, we could have made a masterpiece, (laughs) which, yeah, I know it's, uh, it's a hard thing to, to hear. And and I will just, you know, argue in defense of the film and say, it's already a masterpiece. He did that. Uh, he, 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 He did that thing, uh, already, but look, like I am not gonna sit here, stand here, float here. To those of you listening in, in, to me in your head right you now, are floating, I am yeah. just levitating right now <laughs> in your ears, left and right, in this this uh, oh my mono God, it's audio. True. It that is. is what happens. Yeah, I just burrow into your head, and wow. you get to hear me. By any means, I'm not going to float here and just <laughs> tell you all that I, I think this guy's wrong because he's entitled to his opinions. Absolutely, his feelings are 100% valid. If I were somebody in this scenario, if I were the the victim of uh, a worldwide <laughs> grooming scandal and the you know a- abuse victim of this woman and all this stuff had happened to me, I would also have uh, much trepidation and concern and lots of feelings about somebody making a movie where somebody like Charles Melton portrays a character. Not unlike me and and my lived experience. Totally valid to feel this way. That being said, I don't know that the story that was told necessitated his involvement. And I also, I mean, just like, you know, even outside of like legality, don't think that Todd Haynes had any sort of like responsibility to consult with Full Out on this. Like, I, I just don't think it makes, it enriches the story in any way to have that perspective. And in fact, the movie explores that very idea of what it means to consult to use real subjects to like try to 
uncover some core truth simply by like osmosis and spending time and trying to figure out a way to like emulate and understand them. Like that is what part of the movie is about. I, I, I made this quip online, of course, but it's like, you know, I, I see this conversation happening about all of these things, about artistic responsibility, about the ethics of it, about like the uh, like incongruity of art and reality and all these things. And like, if you want interesting thoughts on that, like just watch the fucking movie. Like that's that's the movie. That is what it's talking about. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's a conversation that persists. It seems like people uh, don't like this movie very much on the internet in some seg- sex. Um, you know, specifically the people who uh, are, I-, I think, kind of, you know, f- forgive me if this is flippant, but kind of bastardizing the idea of consent as it pertains to telling uh, a story through art. The notion of it being necessary and vital for Haynes to consult or to get permission of some kind to tell this story is a more reactionary impulse than I think a lot of those people who hold it think it is. If someone was going to play me in a movie and that person was Charles Melton and he did what he did in May, December, I would have no qualms. (laughs) I would be honored. Yeah. I mean, He's legitimately the best fucking part of that film. Yeah. He's also the most compelling character. He is. And he is the character that I think rings the most sympathy out of anyone on screen. Absolutely. So, you know, already, like, I'm just like, all right, whatever. But again, like, he's allowed to feel how he's allowed to feel. What I find problematic about the conversation is that, like, surrounding the interview there are people very liberally using the term abuse when they are talking not about what happened to this man but what todd haynes did in the film right and i think like that's a fucking problem i think that that's <laughs> like, uh i think that's profoundly trivializing of that it of is that trivializing man's experience. the experience of a person who actually was abused and it's doing this thing that I can't like say, but like, <laughs> but we're going to power through it and try anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think there is an overemphasis on consent, not coming from a bad place, coming from a good intentioned place, but there is an overemphasis on consent to the point that the material experience of the thing we are talking about, consensus, consent giving, that becomes obfuscated and in many cases flattened, distorted, and perverted. Yeah, I agree with that. And what happens when we do that is we we corrupt the language that is in place to protect people in such a way that we are not able to protect them anymore yeah and i have major fucking issues with that also it just it's about like the commodification of yes, that idea this and is of the that other notion. thing i was gonna say okay please it you know this is well-tread territory for me carlos i was talking about how everything is a fucking commodity <laughs> like, that's what we do on the show hello welcome to hit factory um but you know a, a symptom of 
capitalist realism is that we cannot imagine experiences, ideas, beliefs, material realities beyond the framework of a consumer marketplace. And what we do when we talk about the idea of consent in relation to a movie being made, we are inserting ourselves into the framework of commodities, into Mm. the framework of artifacts, into the framework of consumer exchange and the act of consumption. And in doing so, we are flattening the ideas we are talking about and we are limiting our understanding of them to a capitalist marketplace, to a, a privatized economy. Yeah. Instead of something that exists outside and beyond and is more complex than those levers of the market allow us to be. Yeah. Or allow like you know someone's experience to be uh interacted with mm-hmm. that he can't make money or like participate in the production of his story finger quotes is degrading the idea of his experience to a a a marketplace right whether or not he possesses like total ownership over the thing and can then like leverage that into a commodity or into the pursuit of that story within a consumptive pattern of behavior it's making it determinant on like marketplace currencies and that is not like what that man's lived experience is about it also like is an incredibly myopic ideal to pursue in just the sense of like trying to find a cookie cutter templated like one size fits all like prefab idea of moralism as it's regarded and pertains to this story or any story right like we want this story to be a clear uh abuser and victim story and to an extent yes it is that's very simple to read that like this was a child who was groomed who was preyed upon who was abused by an adult in a way that is not acceptable. The film says as much without stating it outright. Uh, But it also is concerned with and interested in the complexities of why the fuck something like that might happen. And also why, just like in real life, someone like Vili Falau might still be married to Mary Kay Letourneau and be raising a family with them and ask the question of, if this is a simple story of good and evil abuser and victim, and it's that cookie cutter clear, like why did this not turn out in the way that we would like believe it to if we were ascribing a patented one size fits all form of justice to it? Why is he showing us the marijuana roof scene? One of the best scenes in the entire film, one of the best scenes in, in film in 2023. Why frankly. would you show us that, Todd Haynes, if you wanted us to just swallow this story wholesale and not engage with its complexities? Uh, you wouldn't. You wouldn't do that, no, Todd. You wouldn't. And also, like, you know, the fact that, you know, Julianne Moore's character is herself, like, stunted and underdeveloped and, and very much like a lady child in the movie. The 
scene where Melton comes home after sleeping with Natalie Portman, spoilers, and walks into a dark house to hear Julianne Moore sobbing upstairs. And his response is just a groan and fuck because he knows what this means in terms of like the emotional like labor he's about to have to do for her is so rich and so well observed and so brilliant in its like brevity and succinctness. Like you only come to that when you are willing to wade into the ugliness and complexity of a story like that. That fuck is followed by him trying to have one of the most like open, honest, vulnerable, like unflinching conversations he's ever had with his wife. Yeah. Also a complication. Also a complication. Right? Like if he was like, oh, fuck you. Like he would not attempt that. Right. He would not invest in trying to share his feelings with this woman who he loves, who he does not want to hurt, but who he also feels compelled to be honest with. I also think, and I won't say anything else about Todd Haynes after this. That's not true. I will. But like, <laughs> we uh, will never stop talking about no, Todd Haynes. Never stop talking That's about a him. hit factory guarantee, listener. He's so good. He's very special. Um, He's like Hermes. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. Um, I, what I love about May, December and what I love about Haynes's work is that he, as we said on our 2023 year in review, is a director and an artist that requires you. It requires you. It requires you. Like, full stop. It requires you. It is, you are p- literally part of the equation. Right. You are part of the work of art, your engagement with it, your active participation, correct, curiosity, recoiling, whatever it may be, right. your revulsion towards the thing is part of the finished work. Yes. And I am thinking of this conversation we had about like, you know, films sort of like anticipating your metatextual remarks and like incorporating them into the text itself so that like they can circumnavigate your engagement and have you just sit there like a fucking, you know, person with shit sliding down your gullet. Right. I can't think of a good metaphor. That's right. You're a, you're a slide. You're a tube slide. You're the cop slide. You just have a, a little nugget of cop ping ponging around down your orifices like straight through you. That's how the <laughs> movie moves through your mind. Yes. Um. I think often like one of the most like pristine and when I say pristine, I mean this uh, in a derogative way. Um, pristine examples of this is from the movie Free Guy, <laughs> which I watched to completion. Uh, we've talked we've talked about it on the show before. You had like an existential crisis I when you was, watched that movie. I was, I was not there, dear listener, but Carly messaged me a great deal about it and was like, I need to talk to somebody about this. Can I please have like 10 minutes on the next episode? It's an insane <laughs> movie. Okay, whatever. I'm not going to talk about it. I will just talk about this one moment, which is like, 
perfectly encapsulates, I think, everything that is wrong with films today that are finger quotes progressive and in some circles considered transgressive, Mm -hmm. which is not correct. Not correct. Um, There's like a moment in the film when like Ryan Reynolds character and like a hot lady from Killing Eve. Jodie Comer. Yeah. When they are like talking about how they're going to like beat this like game that they're in and like part of it. I don't even remember the details, whatever. They have to like go into the real world or something. Sure. And somebody says, (laughs) I'm sorry, it's so bad. Somebody in the crowd that they're proselytizing to asks the question, lobs the question, uh, uh, are there guns there? Like, in the real world? And Killing Eve lady and Ryan Reynolds go, yeah, ooh, kind of a lot. It's actually a, it's kind of a, it's kind of a problem. Kind of a problem. And like, that is like, (laughs) the way that they like, comment on and like, shorthand fucking gun violence and they get to be smug about it. They get to say, we are acknowledging this thing right. that you know and we know is a problem. Well, they're beating you to the anticipation of that even consideration within the context of the film, right? Like, it's like, we we see all the shooting, we see all the explosions, and we know you're going to ask a question about it. So let's, it, it's fucking... It's Richard Jewell asked and answered, right? Like we already asked that. We already answered that. It is done. We have gotten past it. We have acknowledged it in the film. You don't have to think about it difficultly. You don't have to think about it in any way whatsoever, in any sort of complicated or complex way. And yes, we've talked about in the show, smarter people than us have uh, illuminated this idea, this concept before that like everything about modern filmmaking prepackages it. It compartmentalizes everything. It makes it consumable both as text and as subtext. You don't have to do any of the heavy lifting yourself. Todd Haynes stands in defiance of that. Poison is a fantastic example. May, December is a fantastic example. Go watch both of them. Uh, And we'll be here when you get back with more films of the 90s. Uh, And we'll call it quits today with that. Thank you all for listening. You can follow along with the show at Hit Factory Pod. You can subscribe. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Hit Factory Pod, where for just $5 per month, you get the entire Hit Factory experience and invited to the Discord that is always popping off, talking about new releases, talking about our latest Blu-ray buys, uh, occasionally sharing a extremely legal media file of some of the latest films or hard-to-find features that we're all talking about on the internet. Uh, so you want to join us there. It's all really happening. I'll give a shout out to our overlords, Linda, Jared Murray. Thank you so much for your continued support. And we will see you all the next time. Take care, everyone. <laughs>